0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
1: Buffalo, New York. It's one of those bitterly cold places, like right on the Great Lakes, where it's not unheard of for there to be a big snowfall, even Like late into the spring in May. But on Saturday, May 14th, it was actually a proper warm spring day. Pearl Young, who was a retired substitute teacher, she ran a local food pantry there, had just finished up lunch with her sister in law, who dropped her off at the Topps Friendly Market. The Topps Friendly Market is in a neighborhood called Mastin Park in East Buffalo. That neighborhood is mostly poor, mostly black. And just to situate us some more, Buffalo routinely ranks as one of the most racially segregated metro regions in the entire United States. That Tops friendly market is also in a food desert. There's no other supermarkets nearby. Residents have been pushing for years to get that one built. So most of the people in the neighborhood, people like Miss Pearlie, had to make trips there pretty regularly. People like Ruth Whitfield. She was 86. She had just been visiting her husband, who was living in a nursing home near the supermarket. She just dropped by to pick up a few items. Catherine Massey was also at the supermarket. She was 72. She was headstrong. Her family joked that she was a quote, committee of one. She was a community activist and she regularly wrote letters about issues of the day to the local black press, including a letter to the editor about the need for tougher gun control laws. Hayward Patterson was sixty seven. He was a father of three. He was a taxi driver. He was waiting outside of the top supermarket for passengers. Celestine Cheney was sixty five. She was at the market with her sister. She was an avid bingo player, a grandmother of six. She was at tops for some shrimp, for some strawberry shortcake. Roberta Drury was thirty two. She worked at her family's restaurant nearby. Andre McNeil was fifty three, He was at Tops to pick up a surprise birthday cake for his son, who just turned three. Margus Morrison was 52. He was a school bus aide. His family said he was kind of a sneakerhead. And it was movie night with his wife, so he was at the Tops picking up snacks for the two of them. Geraldine Talley was 62. She was grocery shopping with her fiancé. Aaron Salter was 55. He, at one point, was a lieutenant in the Buffalo Police Force. On that day... He was working as a security guard at Tops when he tried to stop a white 18 year old who walked into Tops with a rifle and started shooting people. The suspect is a self avowed white supremacist from halfway across the state. The police say he targeted the Tops because it was in a black neighborhood, in a black zip code. Aaron Salter was killed, as were the nine other people whose names we just heard. So at this point, calling mass shootings like this one random is kind of like calling tornadoes in the Midwest random. Like, we might not be able to predict when they happen, but the conditions that make them inevitable are almost always present. We live in a country with more guns than people, where racism has always been both politically popular and legitimized in policy. We live in a country that has been the site of so, so many episodes just like this one. Massacres of indigenous people, pogroms of Asian laborers, spectacle lynchings, and coups. For centuries now, almost all of it has gone unpunished or has been very thoroughly memory-holed. Back to that tops in East Buffalo, it's closed, at least for a little while, while this investigation unfolds. But as our colleague Adrian Florida reported this week, now the people in Mastin Park are also scrambling to find food. This week's code switch is not about that. There will be time for us to pull thread on all of these things, on so-called replacement theory, on online radicalization, on white supremacist violence, and yes, housing segregation. But we felt, before we got into the episode we do have planned, that we have to acknowledge this calamity in Buffalo to say the names of the people whose families and friends have now been conscripted into the grim work of trying to put their lives back together. As the Jewish saying goes, may their memory be a blessing. All right, on to our show. What's good, y'all? I'm Gene Demby, and this is Code Switch from NPR. And I'm joined this week by my NPR colleague, Malika Garib. She's an editor on NPR's Science Desk. She's guest hosting this episode with me. What's good, Malika?
2: Hi, I'm so excited to be here. It's like when bands go on Tiny Desk and say they can't believe they're here. That's me right now on Code Switch.
1: <laughs> you were guessing us. I appreciate that. We're very flattered, um, and we're glad that you could come through. So Malika recently wrote and illustrated a graphic memoir about her experiences as a second-gen kid of Filipino and Egyptian immigrants. It's called I Was Their American Dream. Malika, I need to admit something to you. I still don't get the first-gen, second-gen thing. We've been doing this show for like a nice minute now, and I still get tripped up on which generation is which when we have these conversations.
2: Oh, my gosh. It's so confusing for me, too. When I was growing up, I referred to myself as first generation because Mm -hmm. we were the first generation of Americans born in the U.S. to our immigrant parents who were born back in the home country. But there are some people who think our immigrant parents are the first generation, making us the second generation. So I don't know. I've heard both. Weirdly, I use both interchangeably. Oh, so
1: you switch back and forth. Okay. Yeah. So, Malika, I'm assuming the story you brought to us today has something to do with... Immigrant identity.
2: Yes, as a matter of fact, although it's kind of a story about a house or some family drama over a house.
1: Man, houses are for shelter and for family drama. Like, that's why they're there.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and that's the case here. This house is in a small town just south of Los Angeles.
3: A one-story house that has three bedrooms, two bathrooms, in a not-so-quiet cul-de-sac. It's right off of the four or five freeway in a blue-collar town called Carson, California. You know,
2: a typical American home.
3: It has a small backyard, small front yard with a big tree in the front.
1: All right, real quick, um, who is that that we're hearing from right now?
3: That's Lizelle,
2: and we're only going to use her first name since we're only able to tell her side of her family's story. So she says this modest house represented her parents' ambitions.
3: My parents immigrated from the Philippines to the U.S., I would say the late 50s, early 60s. And, you know, they were chasing the American dream, like just like a lot of um, other Filipinos that uh, immigrated to America.
2: So after her parents got married, they bought this house. And in 1983, they had little Lizel.
1: This all sounds so wholesome, but we know there's drama.
2: <laughs> well, when Lizelle was a teenager, her parents got divorced. And as part of the divorce, Lizelle's parents were supposed to sell the family house and split the funds equally. But for whatever reasons, they never got around to selling it. So Lizelle and her mom kept living in the house. Lizelle's dad moved back to the Philippines.
1: So he moved back to the Philippines. I'm assuming that he wasn't sending money to the United States to pay for this house that they have in California.
2: Right. Her mom was paying the mortgage on her own. And once Lizelle got her first job out of college, an entry-level job at a newspaper, she started helping out with the mortgage, too. So the two of them are living in this house and paying it off. Fast forward a decade, Lizelle's in her mid-twenties, she hadn't heard from her dad in years, when suddenly she gets this phone call from him.
1: Oh, Lord.
3: I always knew at the back of my mind at some point he was going to come back because he was entitled to that house and at some point, you know, he's probably going to need the money.
2: And the first thing he said was that he wanted his share of the house. He didn't ask how she'd been, how she was doing, didn't consider where Lizelle and her mom would live if they sold the house. Mm -hmm. And Lizelle told me he said he was entitled to the house because it was her debt to him as a daughter.
1: Her father said that it was her debt, it was Lizelle's debt?
3: Yep. He uttered these like 10 words I'll never forget in my entire life. If it wasn't for me, you wouldn't be here. And I basically made a decision at that point. I'm like, you know what, let's just buy him out. He's not gonna stop until he gets his share of the house. So eventually that's what we did.
2: Lizelle says she didn't even think twice about it. She decided for her mom's sake to buy out her dad's share of the house.
3: It still infuriates me sometimes, but as an only child felt like this was the right thing to do. It was a no brainer.
1: All right, so Lizelle is trying to get her own adult life off the ground, right? She's got a college. She's got her uh, starting her career as a reporter. And suddenly she gets pulled into this mess where now she has to buy out her dad's share of the house. Like, how much are we talking? How much was that share?
2: The value of the house at that time, he was asking, was $400,000.
1: Oh, my. So Lizelle had to buy out his 200 Gs? She had to do what? What? Oh, my God.
2: So, Gene, this is what I wanted to talk to you about in this episode.
1: Oh, yes, I'm very interested, okay.
2: This sense of obligation Lizelle's dad expected from her. It's not just because he's a jerk or she's rolling in money. It actually stems from a deeply held, very old Filipino value. Utang naloob.
1: Utang naloob. Did, did I say that right? Yes. Okay.
2: Utang naloob is kind of a tricky topic for a lot of Filipino Americans. On the surface, it feels like an issue about boundaries and obligations, but when you dig a little deeper, it becomes more existential.
1: So, let's start with the like basic, the most fundamental parts of this idea, utang naloob. Like, what does it mean?
2: It literally means debt of your inner self, your soul in Tagalog.
1: That's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure.
2: Right. So it's this feeling of needing to pay somebody back for something they did for you. Maybe it takes the form of you helping someone pay their bills, babysitting their kids, helping them fix their car. It could be many different things. And the reason why you're doing this is maybe at some earlier point, they gave you money or helped you get a job or let you crash at their place for a while. And this relationship could be with anyone, a friend, a family member, a colleague, a parent, anyone who did something meaningful for you. Maybe like in Lizelle's case, they gave birth to you or impregnated the person who gave birth to you. (laughs) Wow. But the thing is, Unlike a regular loaner debt, there's no way to pay back that debt. It's up to each individual person to figure out how to appropriately reciprocate that favor based on the relationship with the person they owe and the favor. And so it becomes this kind of squishy, emotional, personal choice of how to pay someone back. And there's never, ever going to be a point where you feel like you've squared up.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you said, you know, debt of your soul, the whole soul thing underlines that this debt is kind of permanent. Although, to be fair, I feel like a lot of people with student loan debt probably feel like that debt might outlast the heat death of the universe, too.
2: Yeah. And, I mean, it doesn't feel good to be in debt. As you can imagine, a lot of Filipino-Americans, like Lizelle, like me, feel some type of way about this arrangement, in part because it can infringe on your sense that you're making your own way, that your money is yours, or even that your life is your life.
1: Okay, but Malika, like, earlier today I was listening to the song by Deontay Hitchcock, and he has this line, like, if my mom is still working, I cannot relax, Right. And that will sound really familiar to a lot of people, right? Like, first-generation college students, the first people in their families to go to college. Maybe they've moved into the middle class. They have to send money back home, right, to pay for light bills and, you know, to pay for cousin's clothes and stuff like that. And, of course, more broadly, people who work in America send billions of dollars back home to their families overseas, like, in remittances. Like, it's a giant part of the economy in some places.
3: Including the Philippines,
1: including the Philippines. But we know that family obligations, like financial and otherwise, like caretaking, like, you know, child, like babysitting and stuff like that, we know that that's like a really big thing that lots of people just do because that's what families do. So, like, how is this different from that?
2: That's a good question. Um, I would say that what makes utang different is that it's not really about the favors. It's about the relationship between the person who owes and the person who is owed. So let me give you a personal example. I have a relative who decades ago told her 20-something brother-in-law that he couldn't live in her house anymore. Now, Mm -hmm. this relative had kids of her own and had already taken in two older family members. Okay. But because she asked him to move out of her home, she was seen as turning her back on the family. And for that, it seemed like the rest of the family more or less shunned her, and she became a Black sheep. Hmm.
1: So you're watching all this play out. Like, how did you feel about that?
2: Back then, I felt like it was really unfair, and now as an adult, I understand what she was trying to do. She was trying to create some boundaries between her immediate family and her
1: in-laws. Yeah, that's real. Okay.
2: Yeah, and as a married person myself now, I completely understand why she felt like she had to do that. But seeing what happened to her when she tried to draw what seemed like a reasonable line, that helped me get how utang works in my family Mm. and what might happen to me if I didn't uphold my end of the deal.
1: Can you say more about that?
2: So I'll share another example from my life. When I was growing up, I had a really close relationship with my aunts and uncles. Mm -hmm. My mom was single, she worked two jobs, and my titos and titas made sure my mom had enough money to pay for me and my sister's Catholic school tuition, Mm -hmm. our school uniforms. They picked us up from school and babysat us.
1: So this is like regular family stuff?
2: Yes. And these things were kindness done out of love and duty for the family. And now it is me and my sister's duty to remember that and honor that. Okay. So out of respect for our uncles and aunts, we make ourselves available to them, Luckily, my uncles and aunts don't ask for much, but there is an expectation that we should be there for them if we're ever needed. Mm-hmm. Like, there was one time one of my uncles needed a little help to pay for his house, and so I wrote a check. And when an aunt had a 60th birthday party, I bought a plane ticket to fly back home for a night to surprise her. Okay. I do these things because I love them and because they have done so much for me. But also, mm-hmm. I low-key worry about what would happen if I didn't.
1: Like, you love them, but there's, there's a little or else implied. Right. There's no point at which you could have cleared a ledger with your aunts and your uncles, like, where you could be like, okay, we're good, we're all squared away.
2: Right. And I wouldn't want that to happen with my aunts and uncles because I have a great relationship with them. But the problem is, and why I want to do this episode, is that having a debt can be very stressful. And having a forever debt, you can just imagine. So some Filipino-Americans want to do away with utang nala'ob completely, to find a way to end their utang relationships. Hmm. I put a call out on Twitter asking other Filipino Americans about utang in their lives. And I got like 70 people in my DMs telling me their stories, these long threads.
1: It's always wild to me how much people want to talk about these things. Like, they want to unpack them with somebody. Whenever I've done a call out like this, like, people have been waiting to be asked, like, to get some of this shit off their chest. Okay, so that, that being said, you got all this family gossip from all these strangers on the Internet. Like, what do they tell you? I'm, I'm curious, Bill.
2: So I will spill the tea, the ube-flavored boba tea, if you will. Okay. A lot of the examples I heard sounded really, really difficult. Not like the utang I had experienced in my own life, which, again, wasn't that bad comparatively. And a lot of the people who messaged me seemed kind of resentful of their utang-nala'ob relationships.
4: Hello, my name is Dorothy Santos. I'm 43 years old. I
5: am based in San Francisco, California.
6: Hi, I'm Jason Tanamore. I'm 47 years old. I live in Portland, Oregon, and I am in the middle of three boys.
5: Hi, uh, my name is Nikki Palafox. I am 32 years old, and I live in San Diego, California. So some short backstory. Um, my dad lost his job close to retirement when I was in my early 20s. So he started to ask me for money for gas or cigarettes, um, basically reminding me that he was always giving me money whenever I asked. And it started to become longer stories of what he had done for us when the amount of money he needed was starting to get higher. So soon the money started to become in the hundreds every several weeks. And I started to feel very trapped. And the guilt I had for how my dad made me feel, you know, continuing to give him money. My dad needed the money. I just felt guilt and honestly embarrassment. I texted my dad. I told him that I couldn't keep giving him money anymore. And he got pretty angry at first because for him, and I might butcher this, but you will lift us up out of this trouble that we're in. Like I was solely responsible for bringing our families out of poverty and I couldn't.
6: I seem to be the black sheep in the family. I went to college to get a degree in accounting like my mother has. But then I quit to pursue my true passion, writing. One of the ways I distanced myself was never accepting any money, favors, or anything like my siblings, who still do. I had to remove the scratch-my-back mentality with them, and it was difficult to do. But now we're on a respectful level where they don't ask me for any favors or money. This has allowed me to now help out when I want to, instead of being guilt-tripped into doing it. As someone who
4: has identified, and I still do, identify as a queer, gender non-conforming Filipino person, utang naloob does not just factor in money. It's all about the other things that I feel that I owed my mom or I owed my parents to be partnered, to have children, to have a good job with benefits. And I remember my mom suggesting beneficiaries, goddess forbid, something happened to me and You know, she recommended, you know, a couple family members. And my response to her was, I don't even have a relationship with these people that you named. Why would I want to give money to people just because they're a part of my bloodline, but they care very little or they don't know much about me or they never actually fostered a relationship with me? That's another aspect of defying utang na loob. To some extent, utang na loob doesn't, it's almost boundaryless.
1: Malika, it seems like there's a lot of stuff to get into, a lot of stuff to unpack about all this Utang stuff, including how this stuff played out for Lizelle and her family.
3: You know, that money, man, if I had that money now, like my 401k would be doing much better. I, I could have had a different, a different outcome, I would say.
1: And
0: we're going to get into all that after the break. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com/slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teledoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy: family, work, living a fuller life. Teledoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teledoc Health can help. Visit TeledocHealth.com/slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. Ah, the satisfying sounds of more sales in your business. And from the sound of it, your business is growing. But you shouldn't have to pay more to scale your business. With Stamps.com, you can import orders from wherever you sell online, find the lowest rates with the fastest delivery times, and instantly deliver tracking updates to your customers and stock up on supplies. Get started at Stamps.com today with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful,
2: much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out, what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First, every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts. Jean. Malika.
1: Code Switch. So on this episode, we're talking about this notion called Utang Nalo. It's a Filipino virtue, value, ideal that literally translates to debt of the inner self. So soul, basically. And Malika is here because she feels some type of way about this perpetual inner debt and its implications for her life. And it turns out a lot of young Filipinos like her feel the same way.
2: I do. But... Let's go back to Lizelle's story for a second. So, you'll remember, last we heard, Lizelle's dad had called her up out of the blue and demanded that she pay him out for what he considered his share of the house that Lizelle and her mom were living in.
1: So, I mean, side note, it's kind of wild to me that this cat called up Lizelle and not his ex wife. And that speaks volumes about a lot of stuff, including like who this cat is, but I digress.
2: Absolutely, it really does. But anyway, Lizelle decided right away that she was going to do everything in her power to get her dad off her back and keep the house.
3: My family's life pretty much started in that house, and it was, in many ways, symbolized that American dream, and to see it just go away would have been kind of the death of that dream in many ways.
2: To Lizelle, letting go of the house would have meant letting go of everything that her mom had worked for. She worked
3: as an assembly line worker for a lot of the factories around the area. And towards the end, before she retired, um, she was working overnights. So that overnight job really helped pay for, like, going to Catholic school, for example, because she wanted to make sure I had a safe environment to go to school.
2: So Lizelle and her mom decided to just give her dad his share of the house— Even though they had been paying the mortgage for years, Lizelle and her mom, with help from her uncle, applied for a mortgage to cover her father's half. And Lizelle became a formal co owner of the house with her mom. Side note Lizelle's mom and dad bought the house for about 50K in the 1970s, and Lizelle says her dad never contributed to the mortgage.
1: Okay, so, mm, okay. (laughs) So, her dad probably put twenty five K into the no, maybe. No actually Lizelle
2: said that he didn't contribute to the original down payment for that either.
1: So okay, okay, okay. So you mean to tell me that this man did not put in any money for the house as a down payment, no money for the mortgage, but then he wanted to be cashed out at two hundred thousand yeah, dollars? Are you for real? Yes.
3: I know. Oh,
1: my God. Like, I wish I, I wish, he would. Oh, my God.
3: The nerve. Yeah, so we took out a loan for 30, 30 years to to give him his share. And basically, that closed the chapter on that. But
2: another chapter of Lizelle's life began. She was now a homeowner. She was paying for most of the $2,000 mortgage with her entry-level salary. Mm. Then, a couple of years later, she moved to New York for work. She started paying an extra 1600 a month for rent for her group apartment in the city on top of the mortgage in California.
1: Oh my god.
2: Her budget was stretched to the limit, and eventually she had to refinance the house back in California to lower her mortgage.
1: If her father has nothing, he has the audacity. Oh my god.
3: <laughs> I know. Uh, you know, there was a, a moment that I had to really think about, like, is this even actually feasible? It was hard, and she felt resentful. It definitely put me in a situation that I was not expecting at that age. You know, this was like now moving towards my mid to late 20s, where in many ways it's like that's the time you explore, that's the time you have fun and and do all that. Whereas, you know, I got a crash course in homeownership and refi and, like, interest rates and keeping an eye on that and making sure, you know... You're filing all the necessary documents, whereas, you know, that money, if I had that money now, man.
6: Those of us here in the United States are forced many times to navigate contrasting and conflicting cultural values.
2: That's E.J. David at the University of Alaska, Anchorage. He's Filipino-American and the author of the book Brown Skin White Minds about Filipino-Americans' relationship with America and how that shapes their identity.
6: We are forced to make decisions. Do we subscribe to Western values of individualism and independence? Or do we adhere to Filipino values of interdependence and connectedness?
2: EJ was one of several people who brought up how utang na loob can be in tension with Western values.
1: I'm just going to time out here because we got to we got pause on Western values just for a second because when people say Western values or they say American values, I'm doing air quotes. Y'all can't see me do that. Like it tends to feel like a euphemism for a bunch of ideas ideals that are like much more specific and
6: maybe need to be interrogated, but don't really get named as such.
2: That's right, Gene.
6: These ideas of, you know, I'm a self-made man, you know, again, which is a reflection of this individualistic worldview, which is, you know, very different from the Filipino worldview and really the worldview of the majority of the world, really the the non-white worldview of collectivism and being connected to each other.
2: Even though this might not be a reality for a lot of people, there's still this perception that these values are something people need to conform to to become American.
1: Absolutely. I get it. Mm -hmm.
2: So let's look at the history of Utang Naloob. Okay. Scholars aren't sure when it started, but they believe it's a core pre-colonial value of the indigenous peoples of the lands now known as the Philippines. Mm Mm-hmm. Back in the 1950s, Charles Kaut at the University of Chicago studied Utang loob. It's a way for people to take care of each other, to protect each other from poverty, danger, outsiders, and to hold each other accountable. By upholding your end of the exchange, that's how you show care to people in your community. Hmm. So, for example, if you have extra rice, you might give it to a neighbor who's struggling. If you have extra land, you might let a family member farm on it. And those people who were given these gifts or favors, they now have a tie to the person who shared them, and they're now connected to them, forever.
1: I mean, it sounds, in some ways, like a mutual aid network where, like, people are working together to, like, get their needs met in ways that they might not be getting met, like, informal ways, you know what I mean?
2: Right. So Kaut, the researcher, also spent time in the barrio of Capitangan in the Philippines. There were 900 people in the barrio, and they lived in these kinship networks, Family members, extended family members, friends, friends of friends, and they were all bound Mm. by these intricate webs of relationships built on utang na loob. And if one person failed to make good on their utang, it threatened all the people tied together in this way. Out writes that kids in Kapitangan were taught really early on that the world is hostile to the individual, and as long as he remains in a strong in-group, will he be sure of relative comfort and safety.
1: Hmm. I guess that makes sense, right? Because, like, any... Social arrangement like this, like with enough people involved, that's like kind of informal. It requires maintenance. You need reward in this case is like people helping take care of you, making life easier to live. But maintenance isn't just about rewards; it's also about like sanction, right? There have to be consequences because the gamble that everyone is making is that everyone is participating is rowing in the same direction. And if you don't, you might get shunned. But also, if you don't, someone else might not be protected. Like
6: this doesn't sound that horrible or bananas.
2: I know, right? That's what EJ said.
6: The good part about this is despite hundreds of years of colonialism and systematic attempts to not just erase these indigenous values, but to distort them, right, and demonize them, the fact that, that that it's still around, that it still exists within us, despite the fact that many of us may not even speak the languages anymore, we still feel it inside of us. I think that speaks to the power of these values. All right, but Malika, how do we get from, okay, we're all in the same
1: gang, we're all in this together, you know, protected by the group, by family and friends and friends of family, to Lizelle's dad calling her up out the blue and telling her, all right, I need a couple hundred thousand dollars or else. Like, what?
2: Great question. EJ says that over time, the concept of utang na loob became warped. Mm-hmm. Some scholars argue that Spanish colonizers may have even taken advantage of utang na loob to convert so many of the native people to Catholicism because Filipinos felt this need to give back to the Spaniards mm-hmm. for quote-unquote civilizing them, enlightening them, teaching them.
1: Oh my God. And
2: so here we see that utang could be used as something you could abuse, holding a debt over someone's head to get what you want. And that exploitation, he says, has crept into our modern understanding of utang na loob.
6: Unfortunately, that's how utang na loob is often expressed or manifested in everyday Filipino life. People can definitely take advantage of this cultural value to manipulate other people, to bully them or pressure them, you know, to get them to comply or to obey (laughs) or, you know, or or do things that... uh, they might not want to do or are difficult for them to do. Like, I don't know, take out on a mortgage, so you can give
1: your father $200,000.
2: Right. And when distortions like these come up, it's understandable that some Filipino Americans want to draw the line. But it's easier said than done. That's something that Roanne Guilla Samuels helps out with. She's Filipino and a psychotherapist in California who works with Filipino and Filipino-American clients. She says people might say, Wala kang utang na loob, meaning you have no shame, you don't know how to
7: reciprocate a good deed or a favor, and sometimes it's used a lot with black sheep, so someone who is deviating from the cultural group.
1: I mean, this idea that you're talking about, like, the black sheep thing that's not specifically a filipino thing like all groups have some kind of policing right like it's a very powerful and probably necessary thing for like group cohesion in order for there to be a group there have to be boundaries that be people who are not in the group right and things that are seen as a threat to the group have to be exposed or punished like other social scientists have come on the show to talk about like black republicans right like Black people don't like Republicans, but they really don't like Black Republicans because they're seen as, like, part of the group that is opted for treachery, you know?
2: Yeah. So when people try to end utangaloob relationships, even very exploitative ones, they're sometimes treated like Black Republicans, so to speak, as if they're betraying their whole communities. Rowan says that can be really painful. Some people might have panic attacks. Oh my gosh, you know, I have to make good. Or people internalize it
7: and say, there's something wrong with me. I'm not doing enough. Yeah, I'm not good enough.
1: Hmm. Hmm. I'm just thinking a lot here, but that I'm not good enough feeling has come up a few times on Code Switch, specifically our Ask Code Switch episodes. We had a conversation about the way that Asian American college students often frame their immigrants' parents' experiences like through the lens of sacrifice um and how that feeling of having to do right by that sacrifice and grinding to achieve air quotes using this very meritocratic metrics for achievement stresses people out and it does a lot of damage to their like self-concepts and to their mental health and actually thinking about how you've explained utang la loob, some i wonder how much like that idea of parental sacrifice if your parents are immigrants is also, like, complicating this feeling of setting boundaries with your parents and this sense of duty to them on top of the utang that already exists.
2: Yeah. I mean, honestly, that was certainly a factor for me. And Rowan's been working with Filipino-Americans with these same feelings. She teaches them what utang naloob is, how to manage it, and how to know when it's not serving you. She starts by asking her clients to think about whether this debt of gratitude is giving them anxiety or distress. She pointed to Lizelle's situation. Even though it was hard, Lizelle said she didn't think twice about helping her mom. If that is something that makes her feel good, she doesn't
7: see a sense of internal conflict, then I think the ecosystem of Utang Nalo is working for that family system. Unless, otherwise, Lizelle is saying, oh, this sucks, right?
1: Okay, so... What if it sucks? Like, don't obligations suck sometimes? Like, isn't that kind of the deal? Like, that's a big part of obligations is that they're not always fun.
5: Yeah, well,
2: there sucks because you'd rather not do it. And there sucks because the ask is exploitative. I asked Hmm. EJ David about that.
6: Here's an important part again, you know, that that I want to emphasize. It's a two-way street. The people who are using utang na loob to exploit others and to manipulate others. That's a sign that perhaps, you know, they're not behaving according to kapwa. In the Filipino worldview, being called walang kapwa is a lot worse than being called walang utang na loob. Okay, so for those of us who do to be Tagalog, what does EJ
1: mean there, walang utang na loob?
2: Well, the person who is owed this utang also has a responsibility to the person who owes the debt, and part okay. of that responsibility means not taking advantage of them. It means you're both looking out for each other. So kapwa is the connection that Filipinos have to each other, a kinship that you and me are equal. And in Tagalog, walang kapwa means you don't have that.
6: That's the worst person in the Filipino worldview because once you're 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 walang kapwa or you're accused of having walang kapwa, then Really, that means that you cease being a person. You cease being a human. Cease being a human is
1: kind of strong. I know.
2: I was actually talking to Lizelle about this and asked her whether she'd consider her dad walang That's
1: a good question.
2: And she said, absolutely. When mutual friends on both her mom and dad's side heard the house story, most people sided with Lizelle's mom. He has this reputation of being even more shameless now. And before this whole thing, some of Lizelle's family, including Lizelle, talked to her dad sometimes. Okay. Not a lot, but, you know, he'd send a birthday card to Lizelle every now and then. Okay. But after the house drama, they stopped talking to him completely. And still to this day, even though it's been years, when Lizelle's dad comes up in conversation, Lizelle says it's often followed by a string of profanity in Filipino.
1: Hmm. I mean, so he's, you know, an outcast, but... I'm curious, if he was—if he wanted to, could he ever get his kapwa back? Like, is he stuck as an outcast forever?
2: That's a really good question, and it's complicated because, as we've been talking about, it wouldn't just involve making amends with the individual you've mistreated or exploited. It could potentially involve trying to win over an entire community that you've alienated.
1: Okay, so, right. Like, any relationship— you know, when you mess up, maybe your partner, you know, or your mom, or whoever you did wrong by, they forgive you. But you just have to get right with everyone else that they told about what you
6: did.
2: Right, right. And I want to point out a part of Utang na Loob that E.J. David says is really, really important.
6: The more important piece of it is the inner part, loob. Loob is connected to each other. So my loob is connected to you. You know, that's the whole idea of kapwa. Like I, for example was sending money home to my family in the Philippines while I was in college. I had a I had a full-time college job while I was a full-time college student. Um, you know, part of that was to help me survive here, but a big part of that was being sent home to the Philippines to also help my family there with their um, daily you know, living costs, but also to put my nieces to school. You know, sure, you know, was it a burden uh, on my end? And did I wish that, oh, I wish I could just keep all that money to myself? Sure, but to me, it was it was a connection to them. We can talk all we want about, well, maybe we can do both. We can, Yeah, sure, we can. You know, it's possible. There are many bicultural, you know, multiculturally competent people out there. You can, but those are context to context, right? Um, eventually, you will find yourself in a situation where those values are in opposition of each other and you will have to decide whether you go one way or the other if you decide that oh i'm going to go toward the independent side on this one as painful and as difficult as that might be to protect yourself and protect your well-being that's good for you but i hope you also understand the consequence of that right That it might mean, I'm not saying it it automatically means it, but it might mean that you are losing your connection to other people and therefore you might be losing a little part of your Filipinoness too.
1: Like if your Filipino family is your primary conduit for your Filipinoness, then cutting them off or just deciding to keep them at arm's length, that might leave you adrift from like a broader... Filipino community.
2: Right. I know for me personally, my family is what keeps my Filipino traditions alive. If I didn't have relationships with them, would I be quote unquote as Filipino as I am today? It's a scary question, and it certainly adds pressure to keeping Utang relationships intact.
1: Hmm. I mean, it doesn't seem like EJ is talking about disregarding boundaries with people. It seems more like he's saying that if you really value your connection to people and you're in community with them, that their well-being is part of how you make decisions about your life. And on a really basic level, like, what does it even mean to have a cultural identity? Like, in this case, we're talking about Filipinos, but we talk about this more broadly all the time. Like, if you're not in community, if you're not in fellowship with other Filipino people, like, it's kind of like, how is this identity, not just, like, biographical trivia. Like, if you're not doing the thing of culture, which is being with people. Because culture is is people, for better and worse.
2: Absolutely. And that really, really makes me think about Lizelle. You know, it's her dad who calls her and explicitly demands, you need to pay me for this house because mm. you wouldn't be here without me. And Lizelle does pay him. But It's not because of the utang she feels toward him. It's because of the utang she feels toward her mom, who seems like never brought up this debt of the inner self in the first place. Lizelle says something great came out of it.
3: In terms of my relationship with my mother, I think I would not have been as close. To me, it was a no-brainer. And I can just speak for my family. If somebody's in crisis, any one of us, we rally. And how do we rally? We, we pull the money together. We figure out a way to do it. No questions asked. Honestly, Jean,
2: I don't think I would have done what Lizelle did.
1: Huh. You wouldn't have. Okay. Can you can you say more about that?
2: Yeah. I mean, like, thinking about the burden and the debt it would have put on me and how I would have then had to probably borrow money from my other relatives mm-hmm. that would create this whole new set of utang ties. Mm-hmm. That idea, it really stresses me out. But then again, EJ told me that maybe I was thinking about utang and these debts like a little too
6: literally. They say, marunong ka tumanaw ng utang na loob. Tumanaw means to acknowledge it, to see it. Then they don't really expect you to pay it back. You just need to acknowledge that you are indebted to them. The saying is not, matuto kang magbayad ng utang na loob, which is you need to learn how to pay. So it's not the payment that matters. It's, it's, it's acknowledging that you are indebted to somebody.
2: Rowan said something similar, and she gave me an example from her own life. Yeah. My mom
7: is in the Philippines, but for her to be able to help me and my siblings to immigrate, uh, she had to go to America back and forth. So she worked odd jobs in America. Even though she was a business owner in the Philippines, she was like a caregiver. Here for like almost a year. So I have... An alert on my phone that reminds me to call my mom. My debt to her is to
2: remind her when I speak to her to not forget her. Rowan says that when she calls her mom and her mom hears all the good things that are happening in Rowan's life, she has a nice house, she has a great career, her mom feels good because she feels connected to the reason why Rowan can have this nice life.
7: She understands it's not everything, but I am the one who's not forgetting Here's
6: EJ again. At least the way that I understand Utang loob, it is this, you know, sense of connection and responsibility to other people, right? Understanding that I did not get to where I am, like, as successful as I might be, I did not get here by myself. I, I think that's important for many of us to understand. Like, you know, this country, we, we worship, quote unquote, self-made millionaires or self-made billionaires. In the Filipino worldview, you you cannot be self-made anything. The world is going to be a much better place if we stop seeing ourselves as these, you know, super independent people. Because we are connected. We are interdependent.
1: All right, y'all, that's our show. Malika, thank you for coming through and telling the story.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: You can also catch episode three of School Colors in your Code Switch feed. That'll drop on Friday. We're amped for the rest of the season, which will be dropping as bonus episodes for the next few weeks. This episode was edited by Leah Donella and me and produced by Christina Kala. And shout out to the rest of the Code Switch Massive. Karen Grigsby-Bates, Steve Drummond, Kumar Devarajan, Rajan, Alyssa Jong-Perry, Summer Tamad, Deba Multishan, and Taylor Jennings-Brown. Our art director is L.A. Johnson. Our engineer is Stu Rushfield. You can follow us on Twitter at NPR Switch. You can follow us on Instagram at the same. I'm G-E-E-D-E-215 in both those places. Malika, what's your Twitter handle?
2: It's at Malika Garib. M-A-L-A-K-A-G-H-A-R-I-B.
1: And of course, we always want to hear from you. Or you can email us at Codeswitch at NPR.org. And subscribe to our newsletter, which you can do by going to npr.org slash newsletters with an S at the end. I'm Gene Demby.
2: I'm Malika Garib. Easy, y'all. Bye.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. A new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics. Built to move in. Styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR.
5: All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it.